Hey there, everybody. This is your host, Sean King, with My Youth on Record. I'm sitting out this episode, and filling in for me is Stefan Brackett. He's interviewing the industry personality, JJ Italiano, and he's joined by the Flowbots guitarist, Andy Rock. Hope you guys enjoy. I was trying to transfer to either um, Fort Lewis in, in Durango or CU Boulder or CU Denver. And I was like, she's like, well, what's your major? I was like, I'm going to major in philosophy or religion. She's like, well, you're never going to do anything with that. What are you going to do with a philosophy degree? That will never be applicable. I was like, okay, that's pretty harsh. <laughs> She's like, why don't, like, if you're not going to be a doctor or a scientist, just study whatever interests you. And I was like, okay. She's like, so what do you like to do? I was like, well, I, I like bowling. And I like making music. And I really love music. She's like, tell me more about music. Meet J.J. Italiano. J.J. grew up right here in Colorado and is now a well-known producer and artist manager. After being expelled one too many times, he knew he needed to take things into his own hands to craft an alternative lifestyle where he could thrive. We'll be discussing where he found support in the process, where it led him, and how music became a driving force in it all. We're live. Yes, and we are live with JJ Italiano. Man, thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate you thanks taking the time. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah. That's yes. So, JJ, we just want to kind of hop right into it with the, the beautiful and uh, carefree times of your youth. <laughs> <laughs> paint, us, paint us the uh, picture of a uh, high school JJ. Oh, boy. Well... There's only there was a there was a very sh- small amount of high school JJ because high school and JJ didn't get along so well, um, but I was probably let's see when I was 14 would have been like freshman year, and um, I was it was the 90s it was the late 90s so uh, I was really into like music and art and movies and stuff like that and I think the stuff at the time was like, it was a little bit of a darker time. Um, and I was, I got in trouble a lot, um, with, you know, family life wasn't so great and I got in trouble with drugs and I got in trouble with, you know, like breaking into stores and people's houses and stuff like that. And the usual, (laughs) that's probably relatable to a a Mm -hmm. more, more folks than we'd like to think. Yeah. And, um, and then I got, I got caught doing drugs and school and I got kicked out of school I went to juvie for like a week and got out and was highly motivated not to go back to juvie mm-hmm. and yeah that was that was the first time I got kicked out of high school I went back and got kicked out again <clears throat> but that was also in in Littleton in around Columbine time mm-hmm. so Columbine happened while I was expelled I was working at the mall I was working in the food court as part of a conditions of my probation, and uh, one potato too. I don't know if you're allowed to say that on here, or whatever. But they hire convicts. <laughs> we made like baked potatoes at the mall and then sold them to people. So part of the conditions of my probation was that I had to work full time. So I was working full time. I was 14, 15, mm-hmm. and then and Columbine happened, and that kind of really freaked people out. And that made it really hard for me to get back into school. 
And then by the time I did, it was like, you know, I'm, fr- I'm a freshman and I'm 16. And that at that point, it's just like, this is not going to work for me. So, And I didn't much care for it anyway, so mm-hmm. I think it was fine. But I had to kind of come up with an alternative route. Um, so, yeah. That was... How did you come up with an alternative route? Like, how, how, where was your support? What, what was happening? In that uh, my dad was really supportive mm-hmm. in in his own way. You know, I, I kind of so I'd had a lot of home trouble. You know, with I bounced back and forth between my my folks had been split up, so I had bounced back and forth between the both of them, and I really only spent like a year or two with one, and then I'd kind of go to the other. Some sort of big explosion would happen, and then we'd we'd all of a sudden not be on good terms, and I'd go live over here. So after the first time I got in trouble, my dad stepped in, and he was not – he gave me a long enough leash that he wasn't super involved. He was a lot, he was a lot older. But he, he was certainly supportive, and I think I felt like the core of love from another individual that you, you have to feel to – or that is good to feel. That's kind of like the shield from the world. And then my friends. I mean my friends were – I had you know, my, my, my two best friends at the time. It was this guy Matus and this guy Tom, and um, and also this guy Zach, and we just kind of like bundled together like um, hedgehogs or penguins or whatever. Mm-hmm. We had we had very much kind of all been in weird spots, and then we kind of lifted one up, one another up. And so a lot of the motivation I ended up going to, you know, I went to community college, went to went to college early, but a lot of that was just the motivation of being around one another. I think we all kind of. We'd all had our problems, and we, for whatever reason, I'm not even sure how it started, but it was like we were very encouraging of one another mm-hmm. to be like, hey, get your life together. And we'd call in and check on each other. You know, the, the second time I left high school, I remember I called Tom, and I was like, hey, man, I, yeah, I got, I, I, left, I left school again. And he was like, oh, I didn't want to tell you, but, like, I got expelled, too, on Monday or whatever. I was like, what did you get expelled for? <laughs> It was a truancy. It was like, well, they kick you out of school for not going to school? That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so we were highly, we had been kind of moonlighting on whatever our our options were going to be for some time and became super motivated, I think, together. So Tom and I did all the, everything together, which is really, really cool. It was great to have, like, a, a buddy. So that was a motivation. It sounds a little bit like a superhero origin story or like something that you'll hear about a lot of professional athletes where there was a group of friends that peers where a lot of peers didn't exist like you had some folks who were on your level in some way Mm -hmm. and you could dream with Mm -hmm. type of thing would you say that's accurate yeah i think that that's i mean that's a through line through the whole system and i think that's that was also kind of why music for me Mm -hmm is because like i think all as people we just we crave connection we want to connect to other people that get us and understand us and then we derive strength and motivation from that like there's it, it's very satisfying to feel like you're part of something mm-hmm. you know or to feel like the to feel to receive love however you might receive that a bunch of teenage boys receive love from one another in a you know the way that the teenage boys do which is like they just tease each other <laughs> mercilessly <laughs> but it means something mm-hmm. and um and the internet played a big role in that for me music played a big role in that for me i think that became that became a lot of the obsession and what drove me for 
the rest of my life is this idea of like how human connection takes these different forms, how art is kind of almost like a means of human connection Mm. and, uh, and how that can be your salvation. That can like, that can, that can, that, you know, you have to help, you have to be willing to help yourself and you find the energy to help yourself. I think from, from energy like that, that can be some of it is to be, is to feel like understood or to feel like you're not alone. JJ began college at the age of 16. Here, his love for music was solidified and he began his multifaceted career path. Let's listen in. Did college suck a lot less than high school? Way less. How? And what, what was the difference? And how old were you when you were in college? I went to college when I was 16. Mm-hmm. Um, and it way less. I think for most... For me and all my friends, and it's probably different now, this is a long time ago, but what didn't work about high school was just the institution itself. Like, it's not to say that it's a failed, that that there's anything wrong with the institution intrinsically, but like some people are just not going to do so well in that kind of environment. It's, it's, it's a, it enforces that you be there on time and that you accomplish your assignments and it it values like obedience more than it values competence. Mm. It's just the nature of how it works. That doesn't mean that for some people that will really work. Like I think for me as an adult, that would probably work better than it mm-hmm. worked for me as a kid. Cause like now I, I almost crave structure. Mm-hmm. But then I think when you're, for me, I remember feeling like I was, I was smarter than I should be at the time. Um, to work within that system. I was questioning things. I was trying mm-hmm. to figure out who I was and, and all the things, all the angst that comes with youth. And you try to fit that in the framework of conformity, which is really what that kind of that whole system is about. Like, how can you become a more compliant worker? <laughs> really, I mean, that's the backbone of it. So that didn't work for me. This, it was the it was the underpinning. It was the smell of the room. Like, mm-hmm. it was this thing that didn't work for me. It was something broader than any one thing. I had great teachers. I had some bad teachers, but I had really great teachers in high school that I really respected. Um, and for the the short period of time I was there, I had fun some days, mm-hmm. but it wasn't it didn't jive with who I was. And I think a lot of kids probably feel that way. So the light at the end of the tunnel for me was college is totally opposite of that. The kind of like there's a little bit of structure, especially if you're someplace where they you know you're you're living there. But I was at a commuter campus at CU Denver, and there's a little bit of structure, but not too much. There was at least a feeling that you were free to pursue what you wanted to. I didn't want to study music right out the gate. I wanted to study philosophy, religion. That was like my major. And then, but I could pursue that. I could be me and I could learn what it meant to be me without like having to really like follow all these rules. (laughs) That was really, really nice. I think that, that... that transition changed everything. I was wasn't depressed anymore. I wasn't mm. frustrated anymore. I was way less angry. Mm. Um, Were you challenged? A little bit. I was. I, I weirdly enough, I was challenged more in community college than I was in college. College, mm-hmm. but um, but I challenged myself. I was almost free to challenge myself. I think mm-hmm. that's what was really great about the CU Denver experience. Was like, um, it wasn't too hard. It wasn't too taxing. It gave me enough freedom to be me, but that freedom to figure out who I was and what I wanted to do is what I kind of needed. And then as I started piecing those goals together, I was free to challenge myself to achieve those goals, which was uh, awesome. So I didn't feel like I was wasting my time 
but I didn't feel like I needed all of my challenge to come from the school. Yeah. And then how did music come back into play? Um, it was always kind of, well, I, I sat down with a guidance counselor. I don't know her name, and she was a temp, and she was only <laughs> there for the one day. Oh, my God. But when I was transferring from, the plan to me was, I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder because, like, what kid wouldn't love to go back to high school where people didn't believe in you and shut you out and be like, in your face, yeah. I'm in college, I'm 16. <laughs> These guys all followed the rules. They'll be here for another two years. Like, I'll see you guys <laughs> see later. See the <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you freshman, I can't wait. So I was very excited about that. Um, so I was had a chip on my shoulder that I was going to do this, but it wasn't about necessarily music, and I wasn't sure exactly what my job was going to be. I knew I loved music. So I sat down with this guidance counselor, and she said, well, so what do you, I was trying to transfer to either um, Fort Lewis in, in Durango or CU Boulder or CU Denver. And I was like, she's like, well, what's your major? I was like, I'm going to major in philosophy or religion. She's like, well, you're never going to do anything with that. What are you going to do with a philosophy degree? That will never be applicable. And I was like, okay, that's pretty harsh. <laughs> she's like, why don't, like, if you're not going to be a doctor or a scientist, just study whatever interests you. Mm. And I was like, okay. She's like, so what do you like to do? I was like, well, I, I like bowling and I like making music and I really love music. She's like, tell me more about music. And I launched into just it just flew out of me. Like maybe for 30 minutes I talked about how interesting it was with Napster and like how music was going to become this like the Internet and music was going to allow for people to communicate and, tra and, and trade art with one another, inspire people all over the world, blah, 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 blah. And she's like, you know, there's a music business program at CU Denver it's a year old or something at the mm -hmm. time. I was like, oh, cool. And she's like, that was it. Complete, just fork in the road. And that's that was it. I went back and tried to meet that. I don't remember her name. <laughs> I don't remember anything. I don't remember her name or whatever. I do remember I went back like a year later and I like kind of described her. I was like, oh, we had a lot of temps back then. Gosh, and so, but then with that, like, you had the 30-minute speech. You go into music business. How did you make that leap? What was that? What was it about music business? Because you, you you love music, yeah. but like you you identify that the music business is what you wanted to be involved with. How? Yeah, it was it was actually that my best friend Tom at the time was we were in it together, man. We were in the trenches. He was in the same boat. We both did all this stuff together, and so he wanted we're. It was all about Napster. Napster was the moment that really changed things for me philosophically. Because you could share music. When it first came out, I was like, this isn't, I liked Metallica so much. I was like, these guys are criminals. <laughs> and, and, oh, you were your Team Lars at the time? Yeah, definitely Team Lars all day. That's unfortunate. It was, <laughs> unfortunate. <laughs> all respect to Lars. But um, it was like, uh, but then I started using it more and I realized like there was this, this, um, there was this opportunity in that the world the world was going to change. It was like, to me, Napster made the internet. The internet up until that point felt a lot like the TV that kind of talked back. You type something in, you get something out. And then there's some sort of authority on the other end that is, you know, having a website is a big deal. Napster's the first time the internet felt like we are the internet. Like, mm. I can index somebody's hard drive that's my friend or somebody I don't know. And we can share stuff that, that I can learn about music or I can get things... There is a component of getting things for free, but there's mm -hmm. this other component of sharing it. 
So I knew right away that's what I wanted to do. That was for sure, without a shadow of a doubt to me, the something I wanted to work in because I wanted to be on the winning side of history of that transition. Yeah. You know, like because music had motivated me and it had, and it had been this thing that reminded me I wasn't alone in the universe and the idea that anyone could have access to this or anybody could make it was super cool. So I went into business and Tom went into tech and the idea was that we were just going to like, you know, be best buds forever and then we would do everything together. So a lot of the reason why I did business was also just kind of a fluke. I wanted to do the business side and he would do the technology side and then we would come together and do something involving music production and the internet. Hmm. And so you loved it? Loved it. How did it end with your internship? Um, Weren't you, like you had a few more credits, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was, it's all, if I had to like impart any wisdom to young people in this situation, because I did kind of, call it like it is, I did kind of a little bit hack the system here, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't finish high school and went to college. And then I like, when I was in college, I like saved the internship credit for last because uh, you're way more likely to get an internship if you're getting credit because the employer doesn't have to pay Uh, employment. You don't have to pay like workers comp tax or any of those things if the university is still credited. So Mm -hmm. I saved that for last. So I like did every single credit, which made me, I had to stay in college for an extra year to pull it off this way technically. But it made sense because so I saved the last thing and then I just wanted to get an internship. And I knew whatever that one internship was would have to be like a stepping stone to something. So um, I joined a, a music industry students club that was like it was an extracurricular thing in school. And we would take field trips places. One time we took a field trip to L.A., there was a company at the time that's called the Agency Group. It was like a booking agency. I had no idea what a booking agency did, <laughs> but they had a poster of Social Distortion signed by Mike Ness on the wall. And I was like, this was the coolest thing in the world. Like, Mike Ness touched this <laughs> <laughs> painting or whatever. And I was geeking out about it. Um, and then Social D's agent came out and was like, oh, you like Social D, huh? I started talking to him. I was like, do you guys have internships? He said, we might next year. I went home. I emailed them every two weeks for a year until they were like, okay, sure. And I, I saved the credit, graduated college, and then I think five days later drove to L.A. after graduation. And then that was it. Wow. And during that time, that's also when you met Andy, right? I met Andy, yeah. I had the, the unfortunate displeasure <laughs> <laughs> of meeting Andy Guerrero of Flowbots fame. Yeah. <laughs> But pre-Flowbots, and, like and so Andy, kind of like Tom, was another person who uh, kind of joined that forever cohort of people you'd be rocking with. For sure. Instant brother. He's out in the window right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I think you find people in your life that are, I would say the same about you, um, you find people in your, in, that are on, I keep on saying that you find people that are on the same team. Life is so is a lot easier when you find people that like if you share the same values or beliefs as some other person, like you you feel that connection with folks, it's super easy to stay friends with them, even through the hard times. 
but it's the best pleasure in the world is working with people that like you share a common vision that you're like you're on the same path and you believe in the same things mm. and although Andy and I were very dissimilar personalities <laughs> in college <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, we're getting more similar over time but I think we were very we were an odd couple for the first good long bit of it mm. um, I remember I was at, outside of a class and we were talking about the death of the major labels and how the major la- like this chokehold the major labels had in distribution was going to go and I was babbling on and on and on. I was talking about this no effects song called Dinosaurs Will Die, which is about about that topic. And Andy was like so into this conversation. He was like, and he was like, jumped into it and he was going on. And it was like, it, it was like we were going to light torches and get pitchforks and go to Los Angeles and tear down Capitol Records. It felt like there was, <laughs> it, was it was, we were so, the, the, there's so much animosity. And uh, yeah, you know, he's on the, we were on the same team. Yeah, man. The passion for the community that developed when JJ was young paid off in both his personal life and career. Managing the Flowbots was just one of his many exciting projects that he got to be a part of. We brought in Flowbots member and longtime friend of JJ's, Andy Rock, to share more. How do you guys manage uh, just business between... Uh your friendships because like for me like I have several friends who it's like I want to do business and you know make music with but it's just like I don't want to compromise the friendship so I don't know like how much to give how much to take when to leave them alone like how did how do you guys manage that it's it's that's really tricky and that's become really tricky for me even recently Mm -hmm. um it's it's really really nuanced I think it's a really good question like for most of my life I thought that you didn't necessarily need to separate business and friendship and I think I'm starting to change my mind about that I think you you have to be able to see it in in these as two separate categories because part of what makes business work is that there's usually an equal exchange of value at some point so if I maybe not equal, but there's an exchange of value, I do something for you and you do something for me. It's the nature of reciprocity is the nature of business. And you can have if you have that equity that you're exchanging, then you don't really even need to dip into the friendship. And I think it's you can only use so much of the equity of your friendship as that bargaining power before it gets wonky. And then it's like, this person is my friend, but they're always asking me for something. That's, and the, I think the reason why people react poorly to that, I certainly know why I do, is because it makes me sad and it makes me feel lonely and it makes me feel like, is this person even my friend? You know what I mean? It, 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 it exacerbates all of the insecurity that's already swimming around in there. So I think that as long as you're able to, if you can figure out kind of what's in it for each party in any deal that you're doing business-wise, it's not so bad. And it, I, I, I'd recommend in your business dealings be generous in your business dealings, you know, like because um, that makes the friendship a lot better. And the friendships for me that have endured through working together are usually when the business is going really well. Like if you're making a lot of money, everyone loves each other all the time. <laughs> um <laughs> And so, you know, it's like, I think as long as people are feeling like it's fair, it's usually 
fine. Um, it's complicated because, you know, when Reese started, the ba- you know, I, I keep referencing JJ's move to L.A. because he was there for a couple years. You know, like, Flowbots were just starting. We were kind of gigging. We were kind of figuring out what are we, what, what kind of band are we, we are. And, you know, I remember you going in the agency day, the first day, and he put Flowbot CDs and Bob Skisson CDs on everybody's desk. You know, nobody cared, you know. Yeah. But he's like, check out my friend's band. They're awesome, <laughs> whatever. And... uh it's also a lesson for any industry professionals who might be listening, is <laughs> yeah. like because a kid came in and put what was the you know number one rock song of the year in two thousand eight on their desk, and nobody listened to it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and then us having conversations. So I would talk with him, kind of being like, "Yo, man, like you're doing great out there. Like keep grinding. Like I know it's it sucks. Like I would send him care packages and stuff, like comic books and that meant everything. You know." Uh, Green Lantern figures and <laughs> things like that. I still have every single thing that you ever sent me because it was a um, – and I throw away every – I live a very minimalist lifestyle. I live in a plain white box. Um, <laughs> but I still have everything um, because it that's – it's the same thing. It's an extension of a lot of the same conversation, which is like your, your friends lift you up. And you have to be willing to receive love in mm-hmm. the world like and give it. But I think it's almost – I think it's a lot easier – one of uh, the smartest people I've ever met is this guy named John Perry Barlow, who unfortunately passed away this year. Um, but Barlow would say most people spend their their whole life focusing on how to um, how to give love, and and very little time figuring out how to receive it. Mm-hmm. There's a, a tremendous amount of wisdom to that, and as one of the rare occasions where I felt like I effortlessly received love, mm-hmm. is that I was miserable. I was in L.A. I'm broke. I'm getting yelled at. The first thing I did, this I probably shouldn't say this on the record, but whatever. The first thing I did when I was an intern is I sat was sat in this room and this guy just kind of dumped 15 legal boxes of records that he wanted deleted, like shredded because he was going through a divorce. <laughs> and I was like, this is what I came out here for. <laughs> like with this tiny little paper shredder, it was miserable. I was, I hated my life and I wanted to, I wanted to go back to Denver. I hated LA, I hated all of them. And then Andy would send me stuff like that. And he'd send me comic books I haven't read yet and action figures and all that. Like, you can do it, man. You can do it. Like, that means everything. And I think being having those people, in your, if, you, if you're lucky enough to have people like that in your life, you, it's, it's better than a million bucks. You know? and, and, like, doing, and it was this, I always knew JJ was smart and, like, you know, we'd have these deep conversations about the band and like, you'd always be like, you know, you got to walk before you can run, man. Like you got to build something for anybody to pay attention to it, you know, sell out the Gothic on your own, you know, build a fan base on your own. And that's basically what we did. And when we got to the point where we actually got attention and people, you know, handlebars came out and people were really excited about it, you know, like, you know, managers kind of start coming like, Hey, like we want to manage you. And JJ was the only person that was like my best friend that I trusted that I would go to the band and be like, look, like, this is the guy we need to go with. Like, yeah. who had never managed a band before, <laughs> you know, yeah. wanted to be a band manager, had never done it before. But did I feel like what I knew is like trusted him. He was my friend. And if anybody could do it, he could, you know. Yeah. And there was like a lot of learning curves, you know, we made mistakes, we did good stuff, whatever. But I think a lot of the band's success in those time is due to that friendship and that relationship. But also JJ just being young and kicking butt, mm-hmm. you know, for our band because we believed in something. We were had this, like, common thing, but, you know, he was, like, 
you know, the seventh member of the band when we were doing yes. business and stuff like that. It's like, okay, you're one seventh. You get one, you know. What I've, learned, what I've learned since now, again, I have a lot of proximity to a lot of really successful artists, even the, the biggest artists in the world, you know, Drake's manager is the same kind of situation. Like, the, you realize how, that's actually super common. I think a lot of people stick with, and at the time, you didn't really know. I didn't know. It was mm-hmm. just like, I felt like a total poser. Yeah. But um, a lot of people are, that's their arrangement. You know, the, the people around them is, it, it is based on trust. And, mm-hmm. and to what you were saying earlier, like, for us balancing that relationship in the beginning, it was like, it came and saw this band. I, you knew at the time, I knew, Flo, I, lo- I loved Flowbots because I loved the message. I loved what it was about. Fight With Tools was like close to me. So it was the same thing. It was like, these are people that are walking the same path that I am. Like, I believe in this. Big, big, big selling point. The second selling point was I knew I could do something for them and I knew they could do something for me. Yeah. Like, we were both at a, kind of a point but i i didn't try to like get involved with the band in any official capacity until i knew i could do something mm-hmm. and that's a big mistake i think a lot of people make when you're working in either as a producer as a label or as a manager is that you know you're like you really like something so you want to get involved with it that's a bizarre kind of wonky exchange of value and so then those relationships can kind of sour over time um so for us i was like i know i can get this band an agent i know i can shop this band to some record labels and i know this band is like will make me look good mm-hmm. at the time probably i would I, i'll still argue maybe the best live band in the country <laughs> at the time <laughs> well that's kind yeah, that's kind. Kind. You, know, you should like when i think about this i think about the <clears throat> ping pong up and down of jj's career yeah. from okay 2008 sign this band they have a platinum single we're touring all over the world doing everything you know then part ways with the band and then it's like, I'm going to go manage I Fight Dragons, you know, a Nintendo rock band, <laughs> you know, that also makes awesome music, but is, again, something different, right? Probably not going to be on the radio. Probably otherwise. not, yeah. even though it did get on the radio and should have been more uh, more on the radio. Then you go to Republic because all the work that he did, you know, with Flowbots through that label, people saw, J- like, well, like, let's also sign this band because we have this young kid manager who's going to work harder than anybody. Yeah. You know, go to Republic. You run across a guy named Gautier, mm-hmm. you know. Somebody I used to know, like, end up helping getting him signed to Republic. Yeah. True story. <laughs> uh, and then... Do you see, also, yeah. I mean, listen. <laughs> Wait, everybody wanted to sign that. Yeah. Yeah. But you did. Yeah. So congratulations on that. And then working Atlantic, doing that. And then tech companies, unemployed, back employed, working for, you know, the ping pong of your career to now, you know working at one of the biggest music companies in the world, it's like, but all those experiences, you know, maybe talking a little bit about that. Yeah. For me, it's like the same, you can't forget what team you're on. Yeah. What has, what has, what made sense for me, and I probably different, uh, a little bit different case than other folks that have maybe done this podcast, because for me, I don't, I never really had a professional aspiration to be a musician. I was not, it's not that I didn't or it just that was never the vision to me like the vision to me was I just wanted to be on the winning side of history what I felt like was a a pretty magical thing like it was like this is amazing people can make something that is born of emotion transmit it through computers and somewhere else in the world someone can receive this and feel less alone in the world this me is like was amazing and it found I found different ways I found that even as a manager or working at a label 
or even in the on the startup stuff where I found the most amount of satisfaction was feeling like that was the end result. That somewhere somebody was moved and touched by a, a, some sort of transaction happened through the these different kind of media places that changed them. And that was really, really cool. So what helped for me, a lot of what was rocky for me was having a hard time putting like fitting who I felt like I was into what I was doing. And that was a return to my youth in many ways because in, as a young person, that was the challenge. And I think most young people are probably struggling with that. Like, who am I? What makes me tick? What's going to make me happy? And what am I going to do? And uh, that, that, that same weird existential confusion that I had felt when I was 16, I found myself feeling again when I was 30. And, uh, and I'll probably feel it again because the world isn't built around, there isn't a clear path for any one individual to just be the most unapologetic version of themselves, that you have to make it. And part of being an individual and your responsibility to yourself is to find a way that you can like most embrace your gifts and what you value and what you're passionate about and then apply it. Um, so at least for the moment, I found, I've, I've found I found I was fortunate enough to <laughs> weasel my way into getting into the Spotify building. And now I do something that's pretty, that, that, that provides a great deal of value or satisfaction to me. And I think I'd like to think that I'm providing some value for this company too, not just based on the experiences I've had, but based on who I am and that I care about it. What would 16-year-old JJ think of you now? You'd <sighs> be really disappointed about how much weight I've gained, I think, <laughs> more than anything. Um, uh, I think 16 – I think I, – I don't think 16-year-old JJ would be surprised, you know. And I think I, I think 16-year-old JJ would be pretty stoked that I could be sitting here this uh, – next to these two guys in a completely different context talking about success we had. I think I'd be really proud of that, so – JJ, when can we plan the uh, um, assembly at your old high school, <laughs> where you get to like go up and like put both fingers in the air? And everybody, <laughs> just just when can we put that in the books? Uh, yeah, there's two of them. We could do a tour. We go to Dakota Ridge first, and we go to Chatfield second, and be like. In your face. JJ, tell you how to in your face tour. In your face tour. How's that? Yeah. I mean, I have no bit. I've, I've grown to be less bitter about it, man. I would be, I would totally schedule that if I was 20, at 21, man. I felt really, really good. And I was like, oh, and you was like, yeah, that whole city sucks. And now I'm kind of like, it's just, it's a different different strokes man we we're all on our own path and you got to you got to carve out what works for you and the folks around you i think this would probably be relevant to students of this program and maybe people listen to this podcast is like the uh if you don't make sense in the system that you're around then everything around you will be signaling that there's something wrong with you but there's a there's a keen possibility that the system doesn't work for you and um and you have full agency to do it however you want I think if you're if you're a good person and you surround yourself with people that are supportive or other people that are like you, you carve your own path and, and do your own thing. So I'm less I'm less bitter at the high school system now than I was, but that's because I think it does work for some people. Mm-hmm. It just didn't work for me. Well, thank you, JJ, for your time, sharing this this wisdom, space, and energy. And it's been a great interview. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. No problem.
Peace. My Youth on Record is proudly brought to you by Youth on Record, a Colorado nonprofit organization where local teens are empowered to find their voice and value by working with local musicians as their educators. Teens and Youth on Records programs are working to be both the next generation of creatives as well as community leaders. They do this through music, poetry, and storytelling. My Youth on Record is one of their newest programs. Learn more at www.youthonrecord.org. A big shout out to Oso Motley for our theme music this season. They came to the studio in Denver, jammed with some of the Youth on Record students, and we couldn't be happier. Thanks so much.